Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Cause edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined here by Slate Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman. Hello. By... Woman about town, Anna Shemansky. Hello. Who sadly is not going to talk about anything emerging markets. Well, no. we, we probably will. <laughs> there will probably be something emerging markets in here, but we will, yeah, we will talk about more wonderful things this week. We're going to be talking about this is great. I don't know if you've heard about this, but the city of Portland has decided to divest from all corporate securities. We're going to talk about what that means because it's kind of awesome. I love it. We're going to talk about the second coming of Pets.com. <laughs> um, no sock puppets. <laughs> and there were fewer sock puppets, but like... More money. A lot yes. more, more money. money. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and what this means about the... In, in terms of the retail apocalypse. Have you heard about the retail apocalypse? There have been big articles about the retail apocalypse all over Bloomberg and elsewhere. So we're going to talk about the retail apocalypse. But first, Anna, I this is the story which we had like requests coming in over Transom. Can you talk about this? Um, my favorite person in the world, Paul Singer, who's completely insane, is a good friend of ours. Um, yeah, I guess we have to talk about emerging markets, don't we? Because right, you can't there's, say there's, Paul Singer and not say Argentina. <laughs> you, you can't say Paul Singer without mentioning Argentina. This is the guy who famously, you know, basically extracted billions of dollars in um, money from Argentina in a decade-long court fight. But he doesn't just fight countries. No, it turns he out. He also fights this company, which used to be called Alcoa and is now called... Well, this is actually a segment of the company. That has been spun off the aluminum parts manufacturing for aerospace and automobiles, the kind of higher margin, um, higher growth segment. So, so Alcoa used to just make aluminium, and now it's two companies, yes. one which makes aluminium and one which makes things out of aluminium. Exactly, which is run by Klaus Kleinfeld. Or was, was run, run by Klaus Kleinfeld. This is the guy recently. who got fired from Siemens for in, in un, under some kind of a cloud. issues. And has now been fired from Arconic. As yes. it's known. Wait, wait, is he the, wait, is that back when Siemens was literally like stuffing cash in drawers for people to go and bribe third world like bureaucrats? Is well, this... it's a large German company. What can we say? Yeah. Oh, this, I didn't realize he was part of that whole Michigan. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Continue. So, <laughs> so he, uh, so Alcoa is a great American company, which used to be run by our former finance minister, Paul O'Neill. Um, but it was run by a German because we were all good globalists around these parts. And it was run by this German who was very good at making things because Germans are great at making things. And sadly for Klaus, while he was presumably quite good at making things, he was quite bad at making the stock price go up. Yes. Apparently, he was spending too much time at Davos, too much time with Trump, not enough time uh, meeting profit targets or dealing with uh, competition from the Chinese aluminum industry. So, but most importantly, he recently sent a pretty fantastic letter and an Adidas soccer ball to Paul Singer. And, and okay, so, all right, we need to back up a little bit here. Paul Singer runs an activist hedge fund called Elliott Management. Yes. They do other things as well. <laughs> and 
one of his activist stakes was in Arconic. Exactly. He was looking at Klaus and saying, Klaus, you're spending too much time in Davos and palling around with Donald Trump and not enough time, you know, making the company's share price go up. So we want you fired. We want the board replaced. We want to come in here and shake things up. Right. And the board and the company had been up until very recently supporting Leinfeld. But then this past week, this letter emerged um, where it's it's a very, very bizarre situation. But the letter suggests that Singer was engaging in some, I quote, lastingly legendary partying in 2006 at the Berlin World Cup involving singing Singing in the Rain in a Fountain and a Native American headdress is somehow involved. I, I have the letter up. If Do we want to like read a little bit directly from I mean, the okay, flavor? So the letter- it's, it's kind of, it's almost like he's talking about like this Apparently, Paul Singer showed up at the World Cup and just went hog wild, or that's what it's suggesting. And there's something that he's almost Klaus is going to reveal right. some compromise, it's like an innuendo that yes, he will like <laughs> release this information to the public. It's suggested. Okay, so so Jordan, like let's let's have a little excerpt of this letter, and I I am going to preface this by saying I have met Paul Singer. He is very boring, and yet this letter makes him sound like just fucking life of the party. But anyway, um. I'm not going to do a German voice. I thought about doing a German voice, but anyway. But you, in your in your mind, imagine like Hans Gruber from Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> and when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. Anyway, it was much to my delight when I recently learned from Berlin what a phenomenal soccer enthusiast you must be. Quite a few people who accompanied you in Berlin in 2006 during and especially after the many matches you attended are still full of colorful memories about this obviously remarkable time. It indeed seems to have the strong potential to become lastingly legendary. Like wow. imagine like tinted fingers and, like, and a then chuckle. he goes on in this vein <laughs> and there's some vague like mention of an Indian headdress. It's kind of insane. It's ridiculous. Yeah. The, the P.S. If I manage to find a Native American Indian's feather headdress, I will send this additional essential part of the memories. And by the way, Singing in the Rain is indeed a wonderful classic, even though I have never tried to sing it in a fountain. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's so, it's so weird. It's so weird also because, like, Singer is the head of a $32 billion fund. He is not involved in most of the day-to-day investments. So it doesn't even make any sense why the letter was sent to Singer. Like, that's the whole thing makes no sense. I, unless like, he was like... Was uh, he drunk? Like, no, it makes... The, I, I, unless it was like literally like he was like doing hookers after these matches. And that's like what he's hinting at. But like, what could... Like, singing a fountain, that's even, only going to make him, people yeah. like him more. More, exactly. <laughs> and, and Paul Singer receives this letter with glee, immediately turns around to the board of Arconic and says, do you realize what you're... CEO is doing in a period of drunken craziness and the board says we totally support our CEO's strategy and our plan and we don't really believe in anything that you say but yeah you're right this letter was a bit too much and they fire him yes suggesting that apparently they did have a point all along well do they because like Elliot's reaction to this has been fascinating Elliot's reaction has been yeah, okay, fine. You know, we got this guy fired because he was really stupid and wrote a stupid letter, but the board is still saying that his strategy was right and his strategy wasn't right. Have they no. achieved something? Well, again, so much of their attack on the company had been targeted to Kleinfeld. I mean, granted, it's part of a larger strategy, but he was the kind of embodied that strategy. So, and and with a lot of activist hedge funds, they tend to focus on CEOs. So getting the CEO kicked out and then potentially getting Larry Lawson, who they want to have a CEO put in, we still don't know if that's going to happen. But that could potentially allow them to put forward their entire strategy and get that share price up in theory. So this actually kind of, there's sort of a, a bigger question I, I this story kind of brings up and I want to ask you guys about, which is, why guys like Paul Singer seem to be so damn effective at <laughs> what they do. Because I mean, this is, you know, in the end, he got rid of the CEO. He succeeded. And then if you look at the econ research, right, the kind of finance econ research, what they found over and over again is that 
um, you know, there are multiple kinds of activist investors. You have like pension funds, right? That who often own like a big share of a company and or, you know, together a few pension funds own big shares of a company and they'll get together and try to do something where they pressure the board to make changes in the way it's managed. And then you have these guys like Singer who are hedge funds who take up a, you know, a large share and like, you know. A, you know, a, a aluminum maker or some such thing. And they try to pressure changes at the corporation. And what they find when researchers look at this, they find over and over again is the hedge funders are just better at it. And they are just they are more skilled at getting higher returns than compared to other people who try to go in and somehow pressure companies. So why is it that the hedge funders are so damn good at this? Why? Why are they better than the rest? So if you're looking at a hedge fund, alternative investments in general, most strategies have much more concentrated portfolios. So you don't have as many investments, which means you have the time and resources to devote to individual investments as opposed to real money guys, your pension funds, your endowments, your mutual funds who have hundreds and hundreds of investments. So even if they have some bigger positions at the end of the day, they do not have the time and resources to devote in this type of action. Also, they have a different client base yeah, or the resources. So so, I I think this it, it really does come to down to money. Um, you know, if you look at how much money Paul Singer spent fighting Argentina, it was hundreds of millions of dollars. And any mutual fund who spent hundreds of millions of dollars on lawyers fighting one of its, you know, own positions would, you know, there's just no way that you could get that through compliance. No, it's also it's a different client base. If you're looking at who's investing in alternative investments, and granted, you do now have a lot of institutional investors like endowments, pension funds investing in alternative investments. But in general, the clients that are investing in a place like Elliott understand that they're going to be engaging in this type of action, whereas individual investors investing in a mutual fund or just an endowment themselves. It's, it's a completely different client base that doesn't have the tolerance for this type of activity long term. And, and, and also, I, I feel like your comparison, you know, you can say that pension funds are activists, but really, are they activists? No, they're not really activists. They might come out and have a quiet, you know, word in the CEO's ear saying, I think you should have more women on the board or something. Right. But that in terms of like wanting, they don't generally go in with the expectation of getting money by making change if they they buy stock in companies they like not in companies they don't like and want to like right they tend to be passive which i also then think raises another question of why we have such negative connotations of activist hedge funds like if these funds are essentially the only people holding corporations and management accountable why do they still continue to have such negative reputations? Well, Aren't they doing what we want them to do? Well, I, I think I can answer that just like the you know the, the PR problem they have, which is that you've got guys like Carl Icahn who are famous for just demanding money, right? <laughs> That's, they go they they demand payouts when the company has too much cash lying around. Well, and some people there actually is something to be said for that. Sometimes the money is just sort of sitting there and not doing anything. It, but I think that you know. Th- People see that and they think, well, couldn't that cash be spent better on investing or on research? And at the same time, there is evidence that companies that get targeted um, by activist hedge funds do tend to cut things like R&D spending. Um, The question is actually whether or not that is really hurting them. Sometimes that R&D spending wasn't really helping them either. So, I mean, for me, the problem with activist hedge funds is is really uh, what you might call a duration mismatch. That I think of someone like Dan Loeb, and what he'll do is he'll take a big stake in Yahoo, he'll throw out the CEO, he'll replace him with someone else, and he'll persuade the new CEO to do you know to basically you know sp- say that she'll spin off the Alibaba stake, and there's all manner of you know financial engineering going on, and then he gets what he wants, the share price goes up, and he sells his shares and he leaves at which point yahoo is basically a basket case he doesn't care he's not a shareholder anymore and the idea that you can waltz in um dividend yourself out a huge profit leave a smoldering wreck behind you and go on rinse and repeat is you can see why that leaves a bad taste in people's Right, but mouths. are they leaving smoldering wrecks behind them? Have often, you seen Yahoo? Right, I realize <laughs> Yahoo is one bad example. If, but if you look overall at companies that have been targeted by activist funds, usually five years out, they they have better performance. So it, one of the interesting things that 
also came out this week was an article in The Atlantic by um, Frank Partnoy and Stephen Davidoff. And they were like, hey, why don't we try and be activists? Just the two of us law professors. Um, and I like them both. They're, they're, they're good guys. And they found this tiny little company in Southern California, which owns a bunch of land. And they reckoned that the value, that the market capitalization of the company was much lower than the value of the land. And so there was an arbitrage there and they had bright ideas of what the company could do to improve its share price. And they tried to activist and, you know, spoiler alert, they they failed. But like, it's a great article. It's a fun read. And I think, again, what you saw there was a duration mismatch. So what they wanted was a short little bump in the share price on the grounds of like, you know, the share price representing the value of the land, whereas the people who are owning that stock are basically owning it as a proxy for owning the land and they know that at some point you know some gazillionaire is going to come along and and tr and buy the company in order to buy the land for some vast amount of money and they're not going to try and rush it and they're happy to sit there and twiddle their thumbs until it happens and it's just it's a question of do you have patience or do you not have patience i, well, I was going to say you know their point at the end of that article is that the, this company was not just kind of lazy and not really moving quickly, but it just wasn't very, very transparent. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't sharing information with shareholders. And, and their conclusion is that more of these small companies could use impatient, you know, activist investors, and they're never going to be, but they're never going to be targeted because those aren't the sort of corporations that uh, attract attention from people like Paul Singer for the most part. They go well, for I mean, like fish. Herbalife was, and that wasn't huge. That's true. Yeah, but, but that's still a bigger company than like Tehan Ranch. I mean, no, I, but I, Going back to what you were saying in terms of this duration mismatch, I mean, I think, though, that's suggesting that there is no connection between increasing short term efficiencies and long term profitability. As though I, I do understand that often when you're thinking about hedge funds or if you're thinking about like private equity firms, which is a different issue of coming in and actually buying out that, oh, they're just completely destroying long term value. But there and sometimes that can be the case, but sometimes that's not the case. And sometimes it can be the case that, in fact, these companies are being poorly run. They are paying their CEOs too much. They aren't using cash efficiently. And these companies, these funds can potentially come in and force them to engage in changes that can affect long-term share value and also, frankly, help your real money investors like your pension funds and your mutual funds that don't have the ability to do this. But they also, it, they, they... They get to be free riders. Exactly. Yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So I want to continue here on this question of activism because there are various different types of activists. There are the hedge funds, as we have talked about. There are the pension funds who are relative, who are be better at free riding than they are at actually making change. And then there are our favorite, like, you know... Singing grannies? Um, <laughs> I was going to say Park Slope food co-op <laughs> types. Um, you know, having huge fights about whether you can sell hummus and the <laughs> spiritual center. Why could you not sell hummus? No, this was actually. Wait, have you never heard about I this? Have not. The the great. Um, it was over Sabra, right? Yeah. It was about you know Israeli settlements oh. or something. Anyway, and don't Sorry. don't go on. Anyway, so <laughs> well, yes. Well, this is part of it. There's this thing called the BDS movement, which is a big thing where you can't invest in. Israel, so long as it's, you know, settling Palestine. Um, there's a bunch of other companies which are considered to be beyond the pale, including obviously uh, tobacco companies, firearms companies, energy companies. The list goes on. Caterpillar was on the list for reasons I can't remember. I'm sure we're all boycotting United Airlines right now. And on and on and on. And the spiritual home of this kind of, like, it's unethical to invest in everyone from ExxonMobil to United Airlines is, of course, Portland, Oregon. And Portland, Oregon has 
a $1.7 billion investment fund, you know, to pay its pensions and whatnot. And the good burgers of Portland, Oregon, turned up one day and said, here's our list this week of the companies you can't um, invest in. And the investment management team in Portland, Oregon, said, listen, you're every time we come back here, you give us a new list of companies we can't invest in. This is becoming unwieldy and unmanageable. And we were okay up until now. But we can't go on like this. And they came up with the most glorious solution to this problem that I've ever heard, which is they said, okay, let's just not invest in any corporate securities whatsoever. No stocks, no bonds from any corporation anywhere in the world. Yeah, I, I would just like to say that if I were a Portland taxpayer, I would be quite angry at the clear violation of fiduciary duty of the people running this fund. And I am going to take the other side of this. And I'm saying that the fiduciary duty is not the same thing as maximizing returns. And that if your client, which is the city of Portland, wants you to invest a lot, you know, in accordance with certain ethical principles, then all power to you. You should do that. So I'm going to take a middle ground here and say, I don't know if I'm really for or against this, but I think it's going to lead to like some hilarious outcomes somehow. Like I, so I mean, on the one hand, they're definitely going to lose money. Like there, if you're not going, I mean, that is you take that for granted. Or, well, okay, okay I, will, I, I will push back on that. Okay, well, okay, unless they go for, so they're not going to invest. You should, in any you should see the look that Anna just gave me. So here's the thing: they're not going to invest in corporations. Typically, that's that's kind of a drag on your portfolio. A how, little bit. How, however. This could lead to some crazy situations like, well, there's sovereign debt. So I almost imagine a situation here where like the, the investment fund of Portland is just going to be lending money to like the South African government in some chase for yield. Like, I'm pretty sure it's domestic uh, <laughs> oh munis and uh, I, but, federal. Well, th- no, it's not munis because That's true, that, yeah. the only, only reason you invest in munis is for tax purposes. Which no, this is – okay, so this is my um, insight here. Okay. This is this is like my, so Anna's one hundred percent convinced that this is going to cost a significant amount of yield or return or whatever you want to call it. Because I can add. <laughs> Jordan is is more or less convinced as well. So I'm going to try and take the other side of this one and say there's a, another way of looking at it. One point seven billion dollars is a lot of money. The corporate port part of that $1.7 billion portfolio was about 30%. So it wasn't a huge amount to begin with. It's not like they're changing the entire thing. They're keeping 70% of what they had. And so the question is, if you have 30% of your portfolio in like risky stuff, interesting stuff, which is meant to be like boosting your returns, where do you invest it right now? Is overheated public equities the smartest place to invest it is I see where this is going you know is overheated bonds the smartest way to invest it or if you're coming at this from a more ethical point of view maybe you could start doing some interesting things in say impact investing maybe you could start doing some interesting things in like real resources like low-income housing or um timber or you know sustainable you know energy or Various other alternative assets which aren't necessarily just buying and selling stocks on the stock market. And if you do that, there's a good chance that, you know, if and when the Trump crash happens, you will look really smart. Wait, so how do you, so, wait, how do, you do impact investing or like alternative energy investing if you're not going to touch? Investing in corporates. Yeah, yeah because it, I mean, also I would argue that impact investing tends to overweight small cap growth stocks, which are probably some of the most overvalued right now. So I think the argument that by moving your money out of corporate bonds, especially very low risk, currently low yielding corporate bonds, and putting them into small cap growth equities in a moment when the market is frothy and thinking that you're going to have better returns. So impact investing in my mind never includes buying securitized equities on the secondary market. The buying securitized equities on the secondary market just is never going to have an impact on anything. Now, you know, I will agree if there was a criticism here, which I haven't heard, like, you know, divesting doesn't make any difference. Like, it's true. Divesting doesn't make any difference. We're we're all taking that for granted at Um, this point. But by the same token, investing 
in some like already issued equity, whether it's a small cap stock or anything else, also doesn't make any difference. So that's not impact investing. You're not going to have an impact by investing in a small cap growth. So stock. you think venture? So you think venture capital here? Or something so like that? so yeah, I'm saying like you can buy Which also equity. Isn't overvalued. <laughs> you you can buy equity, but you're what you're doing is you're. You're, you're structuring investments in certain companies directly into that company. It's always primary deals. So it, you could call it private equity if you wanted, or you could call it structured finance, or you could call it, there's a whole bunch of things which involve a combination of debt and equity and real assets, and which are designed to have, you know, the term of art among these people is double bottom line investing. You could also call it quite risky investments. And I would argue- Yes, and this you, is the 30% look- of your bucket, which is- allocated to risky investments. But it's not allocated to risky investments. If you looked at that portfolio, those were very low-yielding, short-duration investments. And you can do this in debt instruments as well, which is, you know, you can I can give you a risk profile from alternative investing and impact investments and real assets, which is almost identical to the risk profile you had in bonds and stocks. For I mean, you're looking at bonds that were yielding not that much more than the treasury. Right. So you're not you're not going to be getting it it wouldn't make any sense to go into alternative investments VC where you're taking on tremendous more risk for that type of return. Friendship debt or you know there's like I say real right, assets. Right, the whole point is you're going to be expecting a much higher return because you're taking on significantly more risk. And my guess is, I don't know what Portland exactly uses its money for if this is to just offset li- like pension liabilities or if they have a longer term investment horizon so they have fewer liquidity needs so then they could take on more risk. But I would imagine just looking at the structure of their portfolio, they have to they cannot take on tremendous risk. So it wouldn't make any sense to me to go into alternative investment classes, which are far more liquid, far riskier. That doesn't seem to make any sense to me. I don't disagree that ethically there could be an argument for it. But in terms of your fiduciary duty as an investment manager, that doesn't make a lot of and, sense. And to me. I and you know, as I say, I hate it when people like I, I just wrote about the Ford Foundation going on about fiduciary duties. Um this idea that there's this mythical thing called fiduciary duty which prevents you from investing in like the uh, according to the ethics of your client is complete bullshit. Well, it's also a little tricky when you're trying to figure out what your duty is to the city. Like right like right now they're I mean my guess is that the the you know raging grannies who showed up to sing a protest song at this last meeting and that's actually what they call themselves the raging grannies <laughs> from standing rock to Because this is Portland. Because this yes. is Portland. They were wearing funny hats. Because I, I don't, this is Portland. Don't know if any had a bird on it, but um, <laughs> like you know, probably decently represent the views of their fellow Portlandians. Um, however, I mean, how you know when you're making an ethical call as running an investment fund for a municipality, it is a little bit. It, it's tricky. It, it, what what is your duty period? I don't know if. How how you measure that outside in, without something like a vote or something formal? But well, I think there was a vote, and I think that you know, while getting some kind of combination of risk and return is certainly part of what an investment manager's job is, I think it is not true to say that that's the be all and end all, and then in any way you kind of deviate from your risk slash return mandate is a violation of your fiduciary duty. I think that's just not true at all. I mean, I think there is certainly a smarter way to, I mean, obviously there's a smarter way than what they did, but in terms of saying, okay, we want to meet a certain return target because as a city, we have certain things, um, services, affordable housing that we'd like to pay for. So we need to earn a certain amount of money to pay for that. Okay. How can we earn that money? Well, maybe we can do some research into certain corporations or whatever, that we could potentially earn that same amount of money, which is not at all what they yeah. did. Yeah, I, I think I you you kind of articulate where I was trying to get out much better. But like, you know, you have a bunch of activists who are angry about corporations, but it's not clear if they understand that, okay, we may be sacrificing some returns and that might hurt our other priorities. We may, may be making a trade-off elsewhere and cities do have responsibilities for things like affordable housing and such. So the, you know, is... It's hard to say, like, okay, what is your fiduciary responsibility? Like, 
there are things to weigh here. It's not just about appeasing a few activists who show up and get pissed off about you investing in like a coal mining company or something. And we, and we will see. And I guess the the big question, everyone is trading this as a, as a trade off. You know, is it worth losing a certain amount of return in order to um, be ethically happier? And I think a lot of people in Portland would say, yes, it is. Um, and they're making that trade off quite consciously. And then I'm just going to say like, as a, provocation that maybe it's not even a trade-off at all and maybe they're not even going to give up so just to recap uh anna wants them to drop what they're doing uh and just invest in companies felix you want them to become a 300 million dollar venture capital fund for alternative energy and i want them to start lending money to venezuela or something just for (laughs) just for the hell of it to see if they can get high yield that way or or just essentially an oil company (laughs) and and prove their lefty bona fides by supporting socialism directly the socialist oil company yeah that's that's what we each or just lend the money you know to People building affordable housing in Portland. Keep keep it local instead of throwing it to the New York Stock Exchange. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's talk about the retail apocalypse, which, Jordan, you think doesn't exist. Uh, I mean, like, it depends which retailer you're talking about, which so kind of been, retailers. You know, so, I mean, I've been reading these articles about how the workers in shopping malls around the world, or at least around the United States, you know, the employment is down 20%, that it's mostly women, that no one knows or cares about these people because they're mostly women, and that the number of losses in retail, job losses in retail in recent years is like 20 times bigger than the number of job losses in coal mining, but you never hear about it. Is this true? So, I mean, there definitely is a sector of retail that's in trouble. Um, Department stores are very, uh, you know, are are ailing. They're falling apart. Macy's is not doing well. And, you know, Sears is not doing well. And there definitely are retailers that, you know, I think there have been nine retail bankruptcies in 2017. I mean, this is not... Uh, Neiman Marcus is for sale. Yeah. I mean, it's they're troubled. But, you know, I think you have to separate the entire, you know, you'll see a lot of these articles that say, oh my God, retailing is falling apart and one in 10 American workers are in retail. And you have to separate the department stores, which you know really are kind of falling apart. If you look at this, um, if you look at a, uh, a sector called general merchandise stores that the government tracks, I think they've lost like 100,000 jobs in the last few months, which is quite a bit. Um, you have to separate that out from the greater retail sector, which is seeing sort of... Ep- like which includes things like auto dealers and and uh, you know clothing stores et cetera and that is essentially seeing a small dip in jobs that is not really apocalyptic. Um, so you do have one sector of retail that is being kind of eaten alive by online merchandising. Essentially, it's being eaten by Amazon, um, and you know that is something to take note of. But at the same time, you know whether or not that really has profound consequences for the economy at this point isn't totally well i mean let's put aside the economy let's just like stick to profound consequences for the people who work there like if you're if you have a job in a department store your employment is precarious we have seen this movie before ask anyone who used to work in a bookstore 20 years ago like these jobs can go to zero right but are those people just unemployed or are they going into another job. I guess that would, this would be my argument because even though we're seeing some of these numbers, it's not as though we're seeing tremendous, in fact, we're seeing decreases in unemployment. And granted, I, I realize that at this point, we don't know this specific segment of workers, which jobs, whether or not they're able to shift into another job. But there is also an argument to be made that as some of these low-paid, low-skilled retail jobs are going away, there are other jobs, often, unfortunately, low-paid also low skilled that these workers could shift into. And I don't such as such as I mean, what we're seeing in a lot of malls where you're seeing a lot of the decline of some of your traditional retail stores, you're seeing the growth of hair salons, nail salons, fitness centers, entertainment centers, this kind of more the shift to like experiential retail. And essentially, it's often the same skill set. So my question is, 
Are we actually seeing an incredible increase in unemployment among these workers moving forward? Or, or are they or just they getting shifting? jobs I, I, Exactly. I, I don't know. I haven't yeah. seen that yeah. data, but I think that's a, it's a question to raise. Yeah. And, and there's been this sort of political meme going around, which is, you know, Donald Trump cares so much about coal miners. Right. And retail is so much bigger than coal mining. All these retail you know, jobs are disappearing. And why does why don't Republicans care more about retail jobs? And, you know, in the end, it's because retail typically isn't the, the main economic support. For or a, it's not the main economic support of a community. There is no like Poughkeepsie is not you know balanced on 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 retail. Like there's no there's no West Virginia of retail. Um, but beyond that, also I think these jobs. I mean, not I think these jobs do tend to be more transient. People move in and out of them. That's one of the defining things about the retail workforce is that people shift from job to job. And so when one store closes, it might not have the same devastating effect on a on a quote career. I like this idea of sort of velocity of employment that coal mining was a low-velocity industry where people would stay there for decades and retail was a high-velocity in- industry where people would normally, even in the boom years of department stores, not stay working for the same department store for that long. And that the if you're going to be moving on from that job anyway, then the idea that the total number of jobs in that store or in that industry is going down is going to be less harmful. Right. And it's just culturally so different. I mean, you hear these stories when people talk and and granted, coal miners are a very small segment of the economy. There are more yoga instructors in America than there are coal miners. But coal mining represented something culturally to a lot of people, even though these weren't particularly fantastic jobs for many reasons, black lung least among them. But it did represent something, whereas that isn't we don't you don't have the same cultural associations of working at Sears. Whether you should or you shouldn't, that's a larger question, but you don't. And but I let's think, let's yeah. move on to the news hook here because <laughs> so. because this is I, – I had a little poll on my Twitter feed this week. I, I, I said, has anyone here ever heard of Chewy.com, C-H-E-W-Y.com? And 70% of the respondents to my highly scientific Twitter poll said, who, what? No, never heard of it. And I've been talking to other people, you know, around – town and saying, have you ever heard of Chewy.com? And pretty much that seems about right. 70% of it, people have never heard of it. And it's a retailer. And it's a retailer that most people have never heard of. And yet it is being bought. Yeah. So for- <laughs> it, uh, Chewy, uh, reportedly, according to Ricardo, uh, PetSmart purchased Chewy.com for $3.35 billion. $3.35 billion dollars that's more yeah. than the that's more than jet.com sold for yes this if true this would make it the largest e-retail e-commerce purchase ever and what you you neglected to mention felix is that um chewy is sells pet pet supplies like dog food then <laughs> things like that we and all so, learned yeah. during the dot-com yeah. crash in 2000 well at least those of us who were you know alive i think jordan was in was, diapers or something yeah. but um you know, Actually, my fifth grade class did have a stock picking. Uh, my fifth grade math class had a, a stock picking <laughs> project. So, and I, I, I might have invested in Pets.com for a while. But there, there was this, there was this um, generally accepted idea that like Pets.com was the ultimate dot com bubble bad idea, and like it made no sense to sell cat litter over the internet because by the time you paid to ship it to people it cost vastly more than well, but anyway somehow pets.com was a really stupid idea which deserved to go to zero and did go to zero and chewy.com yeah is worth three well, and a half billion dollars so there are two ways to think about this there, there's the mark andreessen point of view right which is that you know he likes to argue that every idea that went bust in the early 2000s every dot-com idea that we laugh at was actually a good idea that was just before its time this would seem to be the ultimate indication thereof or the biggest vindication of, of his perspective however Assuming that this this three point five billion dollar you know three point three five billion dollar price tag is true, and some people have contested it and on the you know anonymously said actually it's inaccurate, but let's let's take for granted that it's true. You could just say is we're looking at a highly inflated market for you know private for for startups and with way too big valuations, and at the same time you have this retail apocalypse happening. So you have companies like PetSmart freaking the hell out and saying we have to pay top dollar just so that we don't get eaten by this competition. And I would actually argue that these are really connected too, because I would say that it's not necessarily 
the retail apocalypse as well as instead the retail shifting, that you have a lot of traditional bricks and mortar stores that understand that they're going through a very expensive transition. And it's it makes more sense often to buy another company that's already doing something well online as opposed to trying to start that in-house. But in order to generate the cash to buy that, you often have to close things like unprofitable stores, which is what we're seeing happening. So I think these ideas are very much connected. But I would also um, agree with you that I think that it remains to be seen if this isn't going to be another cautionary tale down the line. If Because the type of growth we've seen in Chewy.com is pretty remarkable. Granted, it's only been over five years. And I would argue I don't see how this growth possibly continues. This is a company that doesn't make any profits, which I realize that's always the case with a lot of these tech companies. But this, I mean, they they have a lot of revenues, but they don't make any profits. And if you look at the type of food, pet food that they've been making money on, it's just very expensive. This is a, like a, I would say like a really like niche market that I don't know. And it's primarily been New York and California. I don't know how you expect, because also part of the reason that they've been able to grow is because they have great shipping and great customer service. Can you scale that? Yeah, that's that's the thing. The the big difference between Chewy.com and Pets.com, um, and the big difference in a lot of these businesses is that Pets.com was basically built on UPS and the USPS, whereas Chewy.com and the sort of second and third generation retail startups are saying that we are going to invest huge amounts of money in distribution centers in Brooklyn and in Oakland and places like that so that we can get people's stuff we, ourselves very quickly. But as you say, you know, that's great if you live in Brooklyn or San Francisco, and it's not so great if you live in Boise. Yeah. Um, but this is my favorite data point. I need to throw in the data point here. We we look back on, on the dot-com bubble as the time of, like, max crazy and I think in many ways it was, certainly if you look at the NASDAQ stock market. But my little quiz for, for you two is at the very, very height of the dot-com bubble, when Pets.com was trading at its maximum amount, what was the market cap of Pets.com? Okay, so I know the stock went up to like 15. It never, it never, it, it disappointed from the outright. Like it never... Because Pets.com debuted and like immediately started falling because already people knew it was in trouble. But like, <sighs> have I don't, you, know how many I, 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 I don't know. I'm gonna get like let's let's give it. I was pretty young into. Yeah, <laughs> I was I, I was a few, I was like two years out of that fifth grade stock picking class. Um, so or project. Um, I'm gonna let's give it. Let's say I let's say it went to nine hundred million. Let's say sub a billion. So you think it was less than Chewy.com, but sort of within the same neighborhood. Yeah. Like, Anna? I would say, yeah, maybe around around a billion. Around a billion. The answer is the to- the maximum ever market cap for Pets.com was 300 million. It was less now? than a tenth what is that of what in- Chewy.com what, is What worth. is that adjusted for inflation? Still, not yet. It's, like, it's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not going to get. Okay. Not much, yeah. Which just like, you know, it goes to show how everyone says that the private markets are the new public markets, but just that really brings it home that we're not even talking the amount of money that Pets.com raised yeah. in the stock market. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the entire market, market cap is less than many capital raises that you're seeing these days from, you know, the big private companies. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, let's have a numbers round. Okay. Um, my number this week is 37%. So 
0.37. This one came out from a Pew Research poll, and it was looking at internet use around the world and in developed countries where basically everyone is online. Um, and in fact, the idea of going online is something which is, it doesn't even make any sense anymore. We're always online. Our phones are always connected. Our computers are always connected. It's not something where you need to like press a button and dial up and go online. But the one thing which you do need to actively do is call up Twitter, call up Facebook. You do go on Twitter. You do go on Facebook. So what you can do is you can measure how many people go on social media. In the United States, it's 69% of Americans like use social media. In Germany, it's 37%. That's my number. It's 0.37 Germans, or 37% of Germans actually use social media at all. I wonder if they live... I, I, I kind of am envious of that. Interesting. I wonder if there's like a demographic reason or if there's also... Or a, they actually like, read books instead. <laughs> I like richer, r- r- richer, more intellectually fulfilling know, lives. Klaus Kleinfeld would, would suggest <laughs> that that may not be the case. Wait, he, he, un, unless you consider sending a soccer ball in the mail to be social media. <laughs> Analog social. Uh, Anna. Uh, my number is somewhat of a sad number. I'd say, well, it's 3.8%. That is Turkey's current account deficit. Uh, your current account deficit is essentially a measurement of whether you're a net debtor or a net lender. Um, if you have a deficit, that means you rely on foreign capital to meet your domestic consumption and investment needs. Point of this uh, this story is that I think that this is right now the only thing standing between Turkey and total authoritarianism after last week's referendum result, um, where Erdogan uh, essentially... Now, has his executive presidency, has tremendous powers, and what we've seen in the last year in Turkey is is really, truly devastating. But because their economy is still heavily reliant on foreign capital, that hopefully will somewhat restrain him in the way that other countries like uh, Russia that have a much different um, – they're, they're not as reliant because they have a lot of natural resources – it's quite different. So although I, I am concerned about the market's ability to restrain some of these strong men, I'm hoping that this will this will help somewhat moving forward. I was going to say, we just did an entire episode about how the markets fail at this job consistently. Yes, I know. And this is what I was thinking. But my, I will say, recently at my last job, every time Erdogan did something, he would then send out Mehmet Simsek as deputy prime minister to essentially calm the markets, which to me suggested they would have these investor calls and he would do this little dog and pony show like nothing to see here, folks, which suggested that he still understood that at the end of the day, maybe there's only so far he can go. And as I've said, from what we discussed last week, this is a big concern I have, but I'm hoping it restrains him somewhat. Well, so I'm going to come up with the second number, which is 2 million, which is the number of Venezuelans who came out on the street to <laughs> protest Nicolas Maduro. And it's, I mean, it's looking very much right now. Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, is in his sort of Bill O'Reilly mode. He's going to be out any minute now. So he's not going to get $25 million. Uh, he, well, he's probably got more than probably that Probably get already. far more from FX arbitrage. You make a lot of nice... Uh, um, but yeah, I feel you're absolutely right. There's the uh, sooner or later, Erdogan is going to wind up on the receiving end of the popular opinion, which he still weirdly is on the beneficiary end of right now. Well, just like I mean, it's interesting because it's such a it's an urban rural split. Oh, so, totally. So in a way, that disadvantages him because it means that all the angry people in the cities can show up in the city streets and start demonstrating. Whereas if you're you know supporters are in Anato- up, Anatolia, it's a little different. Yeah, yeah. just uh, Bloomberg just had a piece called "The Bond Market Prefers Dictators to Democracies." Right. Although. <laughs> Again, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this, but a part of the argument is that now that we have the referendum result and he has his executive presidency was essentially all he's been working towards. People think now he may actually pull back because the argument is this is all he's been working towards. So even though he'll make some noise about the death penalty, all these things that this actually. He's like Hank Paulson. If you give him a bazooka, he'll decide he doesn't need to to use use it. it. Exactly. That is, I think, what the markets are actually pricing in right now, which I have no idea if that's actually accurate or not. Most likely it's not. But. One can hope. Yes. So What's my, your number? My number is $400. This is the best story of the week. Um, oh, I, I, is this about this is, juice? Yes, this is. Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to make this a whole segment, but we're going to reserve it for the numbers round. So 
$400 is the cost of the Juicero juice making machine. Juicero is a uh, very hyped startup that has received over $100 million in venture funding. Um, And its promise was it was going to make it was going to be the apple of cold pressed juice. It was going to make this machine that just made fabulous, fabulous juice for people who had the money to blow on it. Um, and it, like apparently the machine was able to like put four tons of pressure on these bags of juice materials that were, you know, and that was going to get the like perfect squeeze. Um, why I'm bringing this up this week is because Bloomberg had a fantastic article where they discovered that you could just take one of Juicero's juice bags and using your bare hands, squeeze it and get basically the exact same result as the, the, the $400 amount, machine. The same amount of juice in the same amount of time. Although given that you can only get the bags if you own the machine, I'm not sure how this actually helps you. Well, so I think it just, I. so this is a question, right? Like if you are so, so determined to get Juicero's juice, will you still pony up for the $400 machine just so that you can get the bag? Um, you know, I think that the, just the kind of, the, the halo of bullshit around this company is going to be devastating. Yeah. It's just knowing that you're getting ripped off. It, it, essentially, you're getting sold pre-made juice But this bags. is a discounted machine. It was $700. They've now discounted it to $400. Yeah. And maybe they'll just switch it. It'll be like printers. All of a sudden, they'll make the machine itself very cheap, but then the juice bags will cost like $400. Yeah, well, It'll be like your toners. <laughs> I mean, exactly. that, that, and and I they will we'll... expire. This is my yes. favorite thing about Juicero is that apparently it's a feature rather than a bug that if you put your bag in the machine and it's one day out of date the machine will refuse to press it um, <laughs> one day <laughs> but now we know but now we know that you, you can take the you can take the bag out. out and you can just press it yourself no but i think you're right about they make this machine cheaper and the bag's expensive that right. i can see it surviving because that then the halo of bullshit disappears to some to, to some degree how, how cheap would the machine need to be in order for you to buy a juicero I, machine I, I literally have put up a i one time posted on instagram a message said if i anyone ever sees me buying ten dollar juice they are entitled to shoot me with a dart gun and drag me out of the store like <laughs> i am i have never like i just tranquilize me there like, is, this is there, so I, it is this, not difficult to buy ten dollar juice i know that's what <laughs> they are everywhere in new york city and there's this chain called organic avenue which specializes in ten dollar juices and which recently got sold by one private equity to a company to another private equity company because they can't make it work and it turns out that the number of people with that kind of disposable income to spend on $10 juices is maybe a little bit lower than we had suspected. Perhaps. And going back, sorry, to our our, our previous discussion, one of my favorite data points, or not really a data point, but at Chewy.com, one of their products that they sell is a $190 bag of dog food. What? It is a New Zealand lamb eight pound bag of dog food that costs $190. Wait, for eight pounds of lamb? Yes. Wait, (laughs) You could just buy the lamb. <laughs> you could, you could just, probably buy more than one lamb. <laughs> you could just buy the, I mean, give I, it the meat. <laughs> I, I have my I have a very lovely halal butcher on Ninth Street in the East Village who will sell me eight pounds of lamb for much less than $190. And I can guarantee you that my dog, my hypothetical dog, would prefer <laughs> it to this. Whatever you're buying. Yes. That's so. amazing. Okay. I think that's it. On on which note, if if you have a dog you would like to feed some lamb just let us know on slate money at slate.com and we won't be able to help you because we are not going to send you a 190 dollars bag of lamb from chewy.com but keep us posted all the same and if you do buy 190 dollars bags of lamb please write in and explain the logic <laughs> Um, <laughs> if you have a Juicero juicer, please write in and explain the logic because it would be great if we could have like a call-in show next week from someone who has one of these things and goes, oh, well, yeah, juice. But, so yeah, keep us posted and listen next week where we will have an equally fascinating discussion, but not about juice. Um, many thanks to Zach Dynastein for producing um, this week and all of the other production crew here at Panoply Towers, Steve Lichtai, June Thomas, Andy Bowers. Um, all of the Panoply shows can be found at panoply.fm. Um, thanks for listening. Join us next week and subscribe. Just hit that subscribe button because it'll be even better next week. We'll talk to you then on Slate Money. Money.